electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, small businesses scrambling to take advantage of the federal program that hopes to keep them afloat. And banks are trying to keep up. The voice of the $18 trillion industry, Rob Nichols of the American Bankers Association. We talk to bankers all weekend long uh, at small, medium and large banks who are processing the loans, putting money out the door critically into those hands of the small business women and men who need it so badly. Former FDA head Dr. Scott Gottlieb on expectations for life after the worst of coronavirus with some historical perspective. The idea that things are just going to snap back, we're going to forget about this, this is gone, that's not the case. Smallpox circulated for years, measles circulated for years, polio circulated for years, and it changed American life. Food delivery platforms are playing a critical role in feeding and paying Americans. We'll hear from Grubhub CEO. Everyone right now is all hands on deck trying to help the restaurants, the drivers, everyone impacted through this uh, this economic and healthcare crisis. And faith during the coronavirus crisis. Father Jim Martin joins us. We can see God's love in the way that doctors and nurses and healthcare workers are kind of putting their bodies on the line for people. It's very, to see that, that generosity is one way of God loving us. It's Monday, April 6th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Joe Kernan. First up on today's podcast, the coronavirus pandemic. We might be seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Spain's daily death toll has declined for the third day in a row, and Germany is drawing up plans to end its lockdown. Here in the United States, the Trump administration voiced a note of cautious optimism over the weekend. This is Vice President Mike Pence, the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We are beginning to see the glimmers of progress. The experts will tell me not not to jump to any conclusions, and I'm not, but like your president, I'm an optimistic person and I'm hopeful. And the truth is we're starting to see cases and most importantly losses and hospitalizations begin to stabilize. Here's Andrew kicking off with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, on a headline that really struck a chord Sunday. A tiger at the Bronx Zoo has tested positive for COVID-19. I don't know if you have pets or you've been watching Tiger King on Netflix uh, these days, uh, doctor, but uh, should we be concerned about pets before we get into the rest of it? Look, um, there's really little evidence that this virus infects animals. There's some anecdotal reports here and there of animals getting infected. You know, it's possible that if an animal is in very close contact to a human, ultimately the virus can get transferred in those kinds of settings. But um, the the sort of one-off anecdotal types of episodes probably isn't an indication that there's widespread transfer. For example, we know that there are diseases where if humans are in very close contact to animals, they can get the animal infections, but it takes a very um, big inoculant. You have to get a big dose of the virus from the animal in order to get it because typically the virus itself wouldn't be contagious to a human. So it could probably work both ways. Well, I'll tell you... I'll tell you, watching Joe Exotic on Tiger King with those those tigers playing with the tigers, they're very close. Um, But I do want to talk to you uh, about the more serious issues of the numbers and just how terrible a week we are expecting. But also what seems like, at least from the administration, and maybe you can you can you can weigh in on this, 
um, a glimmer of, uh, of hope uh, about where we may be going uh, with this curve here and, and, and the length and duration of all of this? Yeah, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. So the curves are improving. The model that the administration looks at, that IHME model, if you've tracked it over time, you've seen that the model itself has improved. So the number of deaths that they were modeling on that model about a week ago, the upper bound was about 240,000 deaths. Now the upper bound is 170,000 deaths. The base case is about 90,000 deaths. That's down from where it was. It was over 100 a week ago. So as data accrues, that model starts to improve. And remember, this isn't like forecasting the weather. When you, when you make a model and you make a forecast, you then do things to affect the outcome. So the model is constantly evolving based on the behavior that you're engaging in to try to improve the model. So I suspect when they update that model again, probably today, you're going to show some continued improvement. What's happening is that the northern states, the Pacific Northwest and New York, are improving. They're, they're showing signs of hitting their right. peak um, probably this week. The south and the southeast, however, are going to be heating up. So this is going to be right. a difficult week. Well, to, to the, so let's, let's go to the big question that I think that CEOs are trying to figure out, executives, everybody, we're all trying to figure out, is when we're going back to work and what it means to even go back to work, what that even looks like to the extent that we're, are we going back to work and it's, it's like a time machine, it's like what life was like in February, or we're going back to work and we go back with gloves and masks on on our way in and out, we go straight home, we don't go to a, a lunch place or a restaurant. I, I don't, just tell, tell us sort of, A, what is your timeline for, quote, going back to work look like and what does going back to work look like? Well, I think we should ask our parents what it was like in the summertime when polio was circulating or if we have great-grandparents who are alive, what it was like when there were smallpox outbreaks in cities or even measles. Um, it was a drag on society. There were certain things that didn't uh, happen. There were things that were closed. I think we're likely to see changes in society where certain things, certain activity is suppressed as long as this virus is circulating. This virus isn't going away. I think in July and August it's going to collapse. But by collapse, I mean maybe we'll fall down to thousands of cases a day, um, perhaps hundreds, probably more than that. But sporadic outbreaks here and there and then come back in the fall. This is going to become, as we've said, epidemic in the southern hemisphere and want to come back in the fall. And so the question is, how does life change? What activities don't come back or change? How do we change the nature of the way we do certain things until we can get to a therapeutic or a vaccine? A vaccine is two years away, a right. drug we can have by the summer or the fall, but we need to make a concerted effort to get it. But so just but put that in practical terms for people. Um, you know, parents out there who have kids want to know, well, some want to know if their kids are going back to school. I think you've, you've answered that before. You think not. Are they going to camp this summer, for example? Well, school's out this year. Then camps are probably going to be closed. Maybe the camps will try to get a month in. I think that there's an attempt to restart school in the fall and have residential college. We're going to have to see if we can contain these outbreaks in the fall because there's going to be outbreaks. But as soon as you have a large outbreak on a campus or in a school or in a local district, there's going to be an inclination to close the school within that district. This is unlikely to become epidemic nationally in the way it has now, but you're likely to see epicenters of spread and when, when that happens, you're going to see cities get shunned, um, you know, conferences and other activities curtailed in those environments where there is spread. This is going to be with us for a while. And we're going to have to learn to live with it until we can get to, again, well, so, but that, that, doctor, that's the question. Put, uh, do, you, do you think there will be conferences, there will be events, people will travel come this fall, they'll be getting on airplanes, or is that something you think is not going to be taking no, I, place? I don't think anyone crowds 5,000 people into a conference room again for a long time. I think the marginal customer doesn't return to restaurants, theaters, cru the cruise industry, Disneyland. 
you know, you, you decide what you think the marginal customer is, but that's typically the marginal customer that gives those, those entities their profit margins. I think you're, they're going to need to reassess that. I don't think people are going to be crowding onto cruise okay. ships the same way. So can a boat go out 80% filled? I'll make it more complicated for you. Do you think that people will travel for Thanksgiving? They'll travel to people's homes around the country as they, as they do, or they'll go on vacation at Christmas time, given the timeline that you're now talking about. Because I'll tell you, the timeline you're talking about, I think, is a lot longer than the timeline that most Americans are thinking about, in large part based on the administration talking about this, this ending at, at the end of this month. I think a certain percentage of the population is going to be more circumspect about crowding into tight spaces indoors. So you pick your activity. Going, going to a family's home with, for Thanksgiving isn't one of those activities I think that's going to be curtailed. Crowding into a restaurant um, for an adult population is. So there's certain things I think people are going to be much more circumspect about doing. Look, I think would you're you, going to see people fly? be more circumspect about why they get on. I, I will fly. I'm sure people will fly. But will you take that extra flight? Will you go on the trip that you really didn't need to take? That's what's going to change. You know, people are going to, I think the marginal activity that involves crowding into theaters, airports, small venues inside where there is spread is going to change, especially as these reports of outbreaks happen around the city, around the country. The, the idea that things are just going to snap back, we're going to forget about this, this is gone. That's not the case. This is going to be with us. I mean, remember, smallpox circulated for years, measles circulated for years, polio circulated for years before there was a vaccine, before it was vanquished, and it changed American life. Things changed. We did things differently. We're going to have to do things differently with the coronavirus circulating in the background. This is a fearsome pathogen. Um, this is right up there with some of the most fearsome uh, contagious diseases that we've dealt with. Things will change until, until we can get a vaccine to this, but a, an, an effective drug can deliver the same kind of opportunity which is why I'm so perplexed why there's not a more deliberate effort to get it, because that we could have in the near term. Okay. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, always uh, enjoy talking to you. Hope to uh, have this opportunity again. The $350 billion payroll protection program that was launched Friday uh, was in for a little bit of a bumpy ride for banks and the borrowers looking for relief. And Kate Rogers joins us right now. She's got more on how the process is kind of playing out as we get a little deeper into this. Kate, good morning. Hi, Becky. Good morning. From the information that's been made available to CNBC, we understand the process would work like this. Small business owners contact the bank that they currently have a relationship with and submit their PPP application from SBA.gov. Now, new applications were released late last week, which meant that some small businesses had to resubmit to their bank. The bank then verifies the information on the application and submits that form to the SBA. The SBA then gives each application an SBA loan number from the eTrans system. With that loan number, which is sent back to the bank, the SBA says that banks have the delegated authority to make these loans. But according to industry sources, more information is needed. Many small businesses that we've heard from say that they have not received their funds, as they say their banks are awaiting guidance from the SBA. Now, as of Sunday evening, a senior administrator administration official said that the SBA had given out 100,000 E-Tran loan numbers for a value of more than $30 billion. But right now, it's unclear how much of that $30 billion has actually made its way to Main Street lenders. They're supposed to take the next steps with depositing loans into small business owners' accounts. We did ask for a lump sum, sum number, rather, of actual loans that have made their way into the hands of small business owners. And that's information that we have not been able to get. We'll certainly keep you posted. But I can tell you a lot of small businesses that we're hearing from are very concerned about that $350 billion running out. Because remember, this program is first come, first served. Back over to you.
Hey, real quick, uh, just one question, because we keep hearing about it all weekend, and, and it looks like Bank of America has changed its policy. I'm curious what other banks you think have done the same. When the, when the loan program first started on Friday, there were a number of banks, including Bank of America, who were not providing those loans to people who did not already have a loan with the bank. You could have had a checking account or some other kind of relationship with the bank, but they wouldn't necessarily give you the loan. Bank of America has switched. Have others as well? Andrew, I think that's going to continue to be a case-by-case -case basis. We're hearing from a lot of small businesses that are working with community banks and haven't been running into those same issues. But again, a lot of the banks are saying that they're still awaiting guidance from the SBA. We asked the administration about that last night. We were told we can't comment on what the banks are looking for from the SBA here. So we don't quite have an answer here on, on, on the guidance that they may be waiting for. But I do think you're going to continue to see pushback like that and that lenders may wind up changing their tune. Remember, there are 2,200 of them that are currently participating in the program per the senior administration official. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rogers. For more on the small business loans, let's bring in our guest, Rob Nichols is the president and CEO of the American Bankers Association, which is composed of all size banks. The group is the voice of the $18 trillion banking industry. And Rob, it's good to see you today. Good morning, Becky. Let's talk a little bit about what you've seen so far. On Friday, there were a lot of complaints. Uh, I saw one story that was headlined, thousands of applications, zero loans. How, how has that played out over the weekend? And, and what do you think the, the, the state of the th situation is going to be today? So clearly, <laughs> clearly there was a there was a little bit a little bit of choppiness on Friday. We acknowledge that, and I think some of that has to be the result of the fact we're standing up this massive program, uh, the scale of which we haven't seen. You know, uh, Kate's numbers that she just articulated were really important. Uh, over a hundred over the weekend, considerable amount of work has has been done here, Becky. A considerable amount of work. We were on with the Treasury and the SBA uh, throughout the entire weekend, surfacing issues making sure they understand uh, what uh, what we're trying to get fixed. They're doing a great job um, admitting all of, the, all of the challenge here. But listen, you have 100,000 loans that the SBA has processed in essentially one business day. That's remarkable. Um, that's and then $30 billion. That is the, the essentially the amount of SBA lending that the SBA did in 2019 that they did in a day. Uh, so, the, the, yes, there was a couple of choppy issues, but I'll tell you, lots of work has been getting done. There are, as Kate articulated, 2,200 lenders in the program. As of Friday, the SBA put out the new document to allow other banks, credit unions and fintech companies to be, become certified PPP participants. So that number of lenders is going to grow considerably. And I would just say this, it's in our interest, you know, banks are doing everything they can to serve their customers, clients, and communities. It's critically important. And I would note that even before this program was, was put on the books, the banks have been doing that for weeks. Community banks, mid-sized banks, and large globally active banks have been going, doing everything they can to ensure that the economic tail associated with this healthcare crisis is, is as minimal as we could make it. And the banks are in a strong position for, in terms of capital and liquidity uh, to help right now and be part of the solution, and they're stepping up uh, in incredible ways. Rob, obviously this is kind of unprecedented to try and see a program like this pulled off. I can't imagine how many complications there are, how many difficulties there are in trying to pull it together. But at the same time, uh, talking to small business owners here this weekend, um, for instance, uh, the guy who owns the salon that I go to, he owns three salons. He has applied for three different loans, two through the SBA, one through the state of New Jersey. Um, he said the process was pretty easy getting the applications in, but his bank, because you have to go to the bank that you already use as a customer, has not 
quite gotten the regulations in. And so he's still waiting, says, you know, he's kind of holding in there. But we've been under lockdown for, I think, 24 days now in the state of New Jersey. So he hasn't seen any new business come in over that period of time. He's got a staff that he's concerned about, all kinds of other bills to pay. How, how quickly, in reality, do you think people are going to be seeing this money and how quickly will the rel relief actually kick in? I think you're going to see it um, happening very quickly, Becky. Um, of course, banks are floating this money. Um, so when, when the borrower comes into the bank, um, the bank is, is floating the money. And we talk to bankers all weekend long uh, at small, medium and large banks who are processing the loans, putting money out the door critically into those hands of the small business women and men who, to your point, need it so badly. Um, that's why the SBA is working with the banking sector to, to ramp this thing up so quickly uh, and to get the $350 billion out the door into the hands of the small business women and men who, to your point, desperately need it. It's, it's in our interest to right. get this program as quickly as we can, up and running as fast as we can. And again, you got to remember, we're just 72, 72 hours in to a, to a massive program. But I'll tell you, over the weekend, a lot of kinks were, were smoothed out, which is exciting. And I think you'll see that over the next couple of days, money getting into the hands of those small businesses. Rob, we're, we're out of time, so I need a quick answer. But what is the biggest concern from the banks? They are the ones fronting the money. They just want to make sure that they're going to get paid back and not get blamed for things? Um, it, uh, no. We're, well, certainly there's liability provisions. We want to make sure that we're not blamed for doing exactly what the government's doing. We're also uh, around the KYC issues. We're working on that as well. But I will say the SBA Treasury throughout the entire weekend did a very good job answering all of these questions, many of these questions, so we can get this money quickly into the marketplace. That is the goal of the banks. They're doing everything they can to help their customers and, and clients right now. Uh, and so, again, lots of progress is being made. We have more to do, but this, this program is ramping up considerably, Becky, um, literally as we speak. All right, Rob, thank you for your time. Rob Nichols. Next on Squawk Pod, Grubhub CEO Matt Maloney on supporting businesses through this crisis. If we can help restaurants get through the next few weeks or months, depending on how bad this is, they will come back. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with news about takeout during the coronavirus shutdown. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Grubhub announcing it will donate $30 million of its own capital to 100,000 restaurants to help them during this time of crisis. That's about $250 to each restaurant. Joining us right now to talk about it is uh, Matt Maloney, CEO of Grubhub. Good morning to you, Matt. Um, how much of a difference is this very moment $250 to a restaurant going to make? Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's going to be it's going to be a huge difference. We're looking a difference. We're looking at like a, a stimulus almost, because the way we're rolling it out is a consumer gets ten dollars if they spend thirty dollars. So our thirty million dollars is going to transform into over a hundred million dollars of food sales to restaurants across the country. So that, that's a big slug when when everyone's working really hard to try to put money in the hands right. of small businesses. 
What, what percentage of restaurants are still online and on board right now, and, and what percentage are off? And, and, and do you think you can even shift that or change that? Or do you think once you're off, you're off? Uh, we're trying really hard. So it depends on the market. What we saw is in the early COVID West Coast markets, you, you'd see a, a dramatic dip in restaurants that went off the platform, and they're now starting to come back on. You have New York, uh, Detroit that are in the throes of the crisis right now, and so you, you're, they're, they're peaking at about 30% of the restaurants are off. But remember, you're having thousands and thousands of restaurants coming on the platform for the first time. So we're, we're seeing about the same number in terms of net, but it's just a, a transition. And, and what's the experience of trying to onboard or even keep, uh, keep your delivery people working right now? It, it's incredible. I mean, you, uh, you hear everyone has these, uh, these crisis stories. Our teams are working around the clock. Uh, we uh, tripled our most onboarding uh, at month ever of restaurants. We had 15,000 restaurants go live in March, and we're probably going to do more in April. It's just an incredible intensity uh, of need right now for restaurants. And so we're, we're doing everything we can to help them. And with drivers, right. we launched contact, uh, contact-free uh, pickup or drop-off. And we just launched last week con- uh, curbside pickup for the drivers to make sure there's two layers of protection and, and no contact to make sure we, we help. Hey, Matt, I got a tough, a bit of a tough question because I was looking online and saw some people talking about it. There were some, some drivers, and this is not just true of Grubhub, but across the board, who were saying, you know what, I actually don't make enough money doing this uh, full time. I'm actually better on unemployment insurance right now, given what's taking place. You know, there's plenty of work uh, on Grub. I know there's lots of work on other delivery platforms as well. Uh, we have our own our own stimulus for for our drivers. If they get impacted directly by COVID, we're we're paying them. I know other platforms are, and of course, the CARES Act just came through with a, a lot of relief uh, for gig workers, also. So I think that everyone right now is all hands on deck, trying to help the restaurants, the drivers, everyone impacted through this uh, this economic and healthcare crisis. Right. Hey, Matt, just think a little longer term out for, for all of us, because I think we're all trying to understand what the expectations are. I'm, I'm curious, inside the meetings that you're having, when you look at the other side of this, and the other side may be a month or two, it, if, it, depending on where you think about or how you think about this. There's other people who think that this is going to be uh, a terrible restructuring a bankruptcy situation that goes on for months and months, if not a year. Where are you on that in terms of what happens to the restaurant industry? Wow, that's a big one. I am hoping for the best. Uh, I think that the fundamental economics of our of uh, of our society are still intact. I think that the, there is a lot of demand right now for restaurants. If we can help restaurants get through the next few weeks or months, depending on how bad this is, they will come back. They will be there for our communities. If they can't, uh, then then that's going to be a real problem. Um, but as what we're seeing right now. It, once the crisis bottoms out in the market, it does uh, growth does start to come back in that local area. But we're seeing is is crises around the country in different markets at different times, and so we're trying to dynamically manage that situation on the ground. Okay, uh, Matt, we wish you lots of luck. Uh, stay healthy and safe out there. We appreciate uh, you joining us as always, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. More Squawk Pod after this. Faith during a pandemic. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. The coronavirus pandemic obviously causing economic and humanitarian crisis that's being felt on an emotional level across our families and workplaces. So we're going to do something a little bit different right now and talk about the mental and spiritual impact of what we're all going through right now. Joining us right right now for that is Father Jim Martin. He's a Jesuit priest, the author and editor-at-large of America Magazine. And uh, Father Jim, thanks for being with us today. It's good talking to you. My pleasure. My pleasure. We talk all the time about how the coronavirus, how this is a war against the coronavirus, and you also hear that there are no atheists in foxholes. Do you think that people are seeing a real resurgence in spirituality as a result? Well, I think people are looking to spirituality for answers, uh, but by the same token, I think it's really challenging a lot of people's uh, religious beliefs. You know, people are asking, how can God let this happen? So I think it's, it's a kind of both-and situation spiritually. What do, you, what do you hear from people? Are there more and more people who are seeking counsel from you? Uh, there are. It's, it's mainly uh, sadness uh, at this point in the, in the disease. Uh, there's also a lot of panic, too. And so what I try to remind people is that panic is not coming from God. You know, feelings of hope and calm and peace are. It's okay to be concerned, of course, but I think panic and terror are counterproductive. You know, we are in Holy Week right now for for Catholics and Christians and Passover for for Jews is coming up. And in this time when people probably need it most, you find that the places of worship are closed because of all of the social distancing rules that we've gone through. You've got some pretty interesting ideas and advice that you're giving people for Lent. You say instead of giving up something this year, that there's something else they can do. What is that? Well, I think right now it's being kind. And uh, frankly, one of the ways of being kind, in addition to doing uh, good things for your neighbors, is to you know, practice social distancing and, and stay home and, and not give other people the disease. I mean, I think that's one of the most generous things you can do, which is to take those precautions to prevent infecting other people. What's, uh, what other advice would you give people right now who are struggling, whether that just be with the fear of what's going on out there, if they've lost their job, if they have a loved one who's sick or a loved one that they've lost because of this? What are you telling people? Well, it depends if they're religious or not. If they're religious, uh, it's looking for deeper meaning and, and remembering that God is with you, uh, you know, through small acts of love that people uh, show you. Um, I think that you know, one of the things I'm telling people during Holy Week is that, you know, we can see God's love in the way that Jesus offered himself for people on Good Friday in the way that uh, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers are kind of putting their bodies on the line for people. It's very, to, to see that, that generosity is one way of God loving us. Father Jim, I want to thank you for your time today. We realize this is a little bit different, but we also realize uh, people have all sorts of different questions because of what's been happening with all of this. Again, Father well, Jim, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. It's good talking to you. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. 
To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show, right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.